Welcome to another Coffee Shop Conversation, our weekly get-together with someone interesting. I'm Tom D'Antoni, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Oregon Music News. Thanks for finding us. As usual, we're in the cupping room, I'm still not sure what that is, of the World Cup Coffee and Tea Shop at Northwest 18th and Gleason in Portland. Next week, we'll be talking with Man About Town, Byron Beck, and the following week, it'll be music journalist Robert Hamm. I hope you've been able to pick up the new monthly print edition of Oregon Music News. We're all excited about it. Go to the site for locations where you can find it. Today, not here with me in the coffee shop, but on Skype, because he's in Washington, D.C., is investigative reporter, music journalist, national editor of OMN, and lifelong friend of mine, Art Levine. Let's turn on the Skype machine. I'm on Skype with Art Levine, my old friend Art Levine, the national editor of Oregon Music News, although I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it's a title that I wanted to give him anyway. Um, <laughs> how you doing, Art? I'm doing pretty good. I've got some uh, articles that I've been uh, working on and off on for about a year as part of uh, some investigative projects regarding uh, allegedly abusive residential facilities and private schools for young people with troubles and learning disabilities. Well, that's a happy way to start the start things. Off. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm good. So that's, that's the thing about, uh, it reminds me of Lenny Bruce talking many years ago when he said, you know, if all misery and suffering ended tomorrow, I'd be on the bread lines along with J. Edgar Hoover and Jonas Salk. And so, <laughs> That's a that's the same kind of feeling investigative journalists have when they're working on a story. They have a premise, and they they're looking at it. And they go, "Oh, oh, it's been solved. Oh, oh, and no one's been hurt. Oh, okay. Sorry to hear that. Oh, you can't say that to the person. Sorry to hear that. But that's basically how how uh, how we feel about this stuff. Uh, now, Art and I met for the first time in the summer of 1970, which is you know before the dawn of time. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was it was an interesting meeting. Uh, I, I, I I was a hippie, and Art was not. And uh, Art was moving into um, uh, a, 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 an apartment that was uh, um, leased by the underground newspaper in Baltimore that we both wrote for. And I believe the first time we saw each other, you were moving a air conditioner in. <laughs> Right, and and we were all aghast because well, we, we, had were, met, we, we, we were we were met Right, we had <laughs> met earlier, and that's what I coined the phrase: uh, "Socialism ends when I become uncomfortable." <laughs> because I had this unit air conditioner, and I, you know, I basically uh, income. I think what happened that that year, I did. I might have had a. Uh, of part of the year, I might have had a grant, uh, a, like a $500 grant from the Fund for Investigative Journalism, which, you know, would go a long way. And uh, because I'm an upper middle class son of uh, uh, an attorney, I was able to afford, you know, staying over. So I was explaining to my parents, uh, I kind of skipped the uh, underground newspaper part. I just, <laughs> I explained I was writing for another publication, which is true, an alternative a kind of new publication that Tom Etzel of the Baltimore Sun was starting up, and now he's, you know, distinguished author and uh, writer. And so I was working for his political publication and and Harry, and I was kind of the fellow traveler to the Harry hippies, uh, but a simpatico. <laughs> but my rationale was I would I would my rationale for all of it was I have to dress straight because I'm doing investigative reporting. And but it didn't make me fit in very well at that, like the hippie tea shop nearby where I'd show up with my suit and tie. 
you know. I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm supposing you never told Dad that uh, the, the paper ran the price of dope in every issue. No, but I did have this encounter. We have a mutual friend named Michael Clark, uh, who we both love and is a great raconteur and a very talented writer, and he's an entrepreneur in sports broadcasting. And he used to write under the uh, byline, Michael from Great Neck. And what happened was he did a hilarious piece. Um, uh, he did a hilarious piece uh, that had to do with having sex with dead people or things along those lines. And, and I hadn't met Michael beforehand, but my parents somehow saw the article <laughs> at, 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 you know, from their uh, two bedrooms, uh, two bed bedroom, you know, they, they looked over in this hurt, worried manner and they went, art, are you Michael from Great Nick? And I had to deny that. Uh, well, there was a picture of Michael, I believe, naked with a saxophone in his hands. In that right, minute. still. Yeah, still, right. Like, my parents, we didn't see each other that often, and they might have thought it was a... Uh, <laughs> they might have thought it was a stock photo if they knew enough about publishing to be aware of such things as stock photos. You know, the funny thing about that story was uh, you and me and a couple of... Uh, and Michael and another guy, uh, Jim Davis, we, we had kind of a reunion of the, uh, of, of the four of us. We hadn't all been in the same room for about right. you know 30 years so year before last we uh, you, you all you guys came to portland and and we, we were discussing that story and all these years i had given michael credit for the line necrophilia means never having to say you're sorry i i had i had used that line my entire life and had always given him credit for it and he sat there and said no no that was your line Oh really? Yes, yes, and I had, and I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to take credit for it because I think it's a fabulous line. But I had always made sure that I had credited him with that line. But now I know it's mine. Hey. Well, um, <laughs> so it, 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 it was a very strange period of time because for the rest of the world, hippies were over. That was 1970. Okay, that was like year. That was that was after way after uh, Manson and and uh, uh, Kent State was 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 had had happened. But the uh, counterculture still existed, even well, with after all this trauma discrediting the counterculture. It was after Altamont, correct? Correct. And the thing of that thing was though, Baltimore was always behind the times. <laughs> In some right. things. I mean, at the time, John Waters was making pink flamingos. So in, in a way, it was ahead of the times, if you consider eating dog shit off the sidewalk being ahead of the times. Right. <laughs> um, but but it, it was it was a strange bunch we were then. Well, I guess we still are. But, um, uh, it, it, you know, I, it, I, I actually called up an old girlfriend, Chris, my hippie girlfriend. Right. Who who made who, who embroidered flowers on the bottom of my bell bottoms, and made and made curtains for our VW bus. I called her up last year to find out what I was like back then. Huh? <laughs> what um, did she say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and because I wanted to have a sen a better sense of that. Um, uh, 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 so you didn't you fit in, but you didn't fit in. That was strange. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I basically one reason I didn't fit in is I didn't have it. Uh, I didn't have a, a, as a successful a swath through the hippie chick world as you guys did. <laughs> I well, did ha manage to get uh, uh, involved romantically uh, with, you know, maybe two women when I was at uh, when I was at Johns Hopkins University. Well, it was uh, good. It was good being the dashing young, long-haired hippie. Uh, underground newspaper reporter. Believe me. Yes, it was good. It was good. It was. Uh, and and well, I have to tell you, after you tell me about what she said, I have a story that embodies to me the the, the daring of that era. So All go right. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I forgot his name. Um, the the when I lived in this, uh, I lived in this uh, group home, and and there was this uh, guy who worked, I think, as a waiter. Uh, I forgot his name. He was a very nice guy with glasses, tall, and he had a girlfriend who lived with him, um, who was Emmett. very, 
Yeah, and he and her girlfriend was kind of very vivacious and outgoing personality, dark haired, and would do crazy things like keep the door open while, you know, go using the bathroom and stuff like that. So here's <laughs> the kind of era I'm gonna describe something that is so impossible to believe in the modern era of <laughs> access to music of all kinds anywhere. So basically there this was a bit in about 1971, I think. There was the Ann Arbor Blues Festival was going on, and there was uh, among the stars still living who were playing there were now this is really impossible to believe for blues fans. Sun House, the <laughs> actual guy who taught Robert Johnson how to play the blues, the influence on Muddy Waters, who Muddy Waters would later refer to as the man. Okay. <laughs> Then, so not only that, Howling Wolf, I believe Muddy Waters, certainly Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, and, you know, a number of other amazing people, okay, were playing. So basically, let's, I went to Emmett, and I didn't have a car with me down there. Nevitt. His name was Nevitt. Nevitt, right. It was Nevitt Ensminger. Right. So I went to Nevitt. This, I I basically said, boy, I'd really like to get somehow get out there. I'd love to go there. And I played him Sun House. And he said to me, that's great. It sounds kind of like Captain Beefheart. <laughs> Captain Beefheart isn't touring. So let's all of us go out to Ann Arbor to see Sun House. That is literally what happened. We drove across the country from Baltimore to Ann Arbor, and me with all my sleeping difficulties. Then I used to, I still have them, but I had a back injury and slept on the ground with a roll underneath my feet and so on. And we all went, I think we may have stayed one night at a friend's apartment of his. So we go there and it's kind of a hippie festival, but it's around the blues. And then Near the end of the show, so all these people I saw, you know, one after the other, you know, Howling Wolf crawling on his stage, you know, doing Howling at Midnight on his belly and things like that. Then near the end, Sun House comes on and I had a slight amount of grass and I was trying to pick up this girl who was nearby, but I was trying to explain in a quasi-religious favor, no different than an early Christian, exactly how important Sun House was. I'm sitting there going, as Tom knows, I am very, I'm a devout music fan and follow it. That's why I write about it for free for your publication. So I basically am going, it's Sun House. And I'm explaining the entire history of the blues to this sort of addle-blade girl next to me before he, she comes on. You know, I'm tracing the entire, you know, basically ending up with, if it, if it wasn't for that man coming on the stage, there'd be no Eric Clapton. There'd be no Rolling Stones. Because essentially the chain yeah, yeah. of influence yes. stems from, and this guy's influence is a guy named Charlie Patton, who wasn't yes. there, was he passed away. So to have this living link, and still I loved his work profoundly, uh -huh. come on stage and sing, even if someone enfeebled was absolutely mind-blowing to me it literally be like if a modern day christian go oh there's john that you know there's saint paul there's paul <laughs> now in 1971 because literally the relationship um would be sunhouse saint paul Robert Johnson, Jesus. Okay, yes. <laughs> literally, exact. Except the difference would be Sun House was the mentor. So it'd be like having the mentor of. It would be as if John the Baptist yes. was alive, the man who taught Jesus and was talking to you from a music festival in Ann Arbor in 1971. How would Christians react to that? My feeling is they might be kind of excited. And 
and and Sunhouse, of course, has a song, great song called John the Revelator. Yes. So there are the connections. And I was in a state <laughs> of religious fervor, not to be equaled until I went to the concert for Bangladesh. That was, I think, a bit later than that. And unbeknownst to me, Bob Dylan was <laughs> going to be on that show. And I went to the second set. Uh, I was there with my girlfriend from college. And we went to the second show. We saw the first, we saw a friend of hers in the first show who failed to mention that Bob Dylan was on the set. At this point, <laughs> Dylan was not touring publicly by and large and was still considered hiding out in Woodstock. Now, was this before uh, New Morning? Or, I mean, was it, not, not New Morning, but. Um... What was the, the the album after after the after oh, the right, right the one with the Beatles? What yeah? The, no, that, with John Wesley I, Harding. The one with John Wesley Harding on it. What's the name of that album? Well, I think that no, I think oh, this is before New Morning and after John may have been after John Wesley Harding. Okay, I think it would have been, but he wasn't really touring actively. Yeah. Okay, but he come point. out. But he he had already come out with his new voice. No, no, new voice wasn't out yet. Oh, okay. no, no, this is before new voice. Well, that's that that's the album that John Wesley Harding is on. Okay, well, yeah. I'd have to look it up. You okay. could we, Google it, but I might okay. get disconnected. So I'm no, pretty do sure that. it was, yeah. it might have been after John Wesley Harding. I'm yeah. pretty sure it wasn't with the, maybe new, maybe he, I thought his new voice was uh, on um, Nashville Skyline to a certain degree. But in any case, yeah. Uh, in any case, he wasn't touring and he was the most mythical figure in the world. Okay, to music lovers. So her friend failed to mention that Bob Dylan was coming out, was on the show. So I'm seeing live, you know, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, yeah. uh, Leon Russell, uh, all these amazing performers. And then um, George Harrison, of course, George Harrison says, and now I'd like to introduce my friend, Bob Dylan. So nobody in the audience knew he would be there, right? So essentially it was like a, it was like a true religious uh, uh, festival, and it was like Lords because uh, people were throwing in the front row. The handicapped were throwing up their crutches, and I was in hysterics. And I'm I'm going, and then a cop comes over, a kind of straight Irish cop comes over, taps me on the shoulder, and goes, uh, "What's wrong?" And I'm going to him. It's Dylan. It's Dylan, and I have my eyes are looking through my uh, binoculars, and tears are streaming down my eyes. And like, and he does this amazing set. And then I turned to my girlfriend. I said, "If he does just like a woman, I'm gonna die right here." Fall <laughs> into the aisle, and then he does just like a woman, and like my head explodes. So the, the idea that I was actually getting to see him. And the other background, the background about how I got the ticket is, it was the most sought-after ticket in the entire world for that <laughs> festival. Tickets yeah. went, then all the rock festival stars and their friends and their managers got it. So I asked my father, we're not particularly close for, but he knew somebody who was an attorney for Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and he got in touch with them, and you know, that means the attorney had to work through the unions. So I got the envelope with the two tickets said to me, and on it it said, from the godfather. <laughs> we don't know what deals were cut with whom that allowed me to attend, but that's what happened. So that's how I was there. Oh, you know, um, we do a video of the day every day, and on Thursdays we do throwback Thursday video of the day. And... Um, today, and this is, you know, this is a few weeks, uh, we're recording this a few weeks ahead. Um, I put up um, a, 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 an old video of Bob Dylan on a TV show in 1964 singing and playing The Times They Are a Changing. Wow. And I got real sad because he was wrong. Uh, he was wrong. The first ones now are, are still are still first. Yes, they they they, they, they did not be they, you know they did not later be last. True. However, huh? the 
I, the times were changing, but he was sketching more fundamental changes than actually happened. That's for sure. Yes, yes. The income in, but income inequality now is worse than it was in 1964 when he wrote oh, yeah. that song. That's what I'm saying. I'm the saying systems. What, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that all those things he said, while they were, while they may have inspired you and I and a lot of other people, they didn't come true. No, I think you're. I think you're. You know, it's a half full, half empty. Basically, he was focused a lot around, in 1964, a lot around the civil rights movement. And yes, yes, there's new Jim Crow being imposed through voter suppression, an area I've been reporting on since like 2006. But what I'm getting, but his, I believe that his, what the the times were changing, and I think a good, actually a fairly good CNN documentary on the '60s explains just the culture and attitudes did change profoundly. Laws on the books changed, did allow in terms of um, civil rights, did allow people to vote. I was in Mississippi this past summer in. In Jackson, Mississippi, for reporting for the Freedom Summer, which was celebrating, you know, the the efforts to the Voting Rights Project and the time around which uh, uh, Schwerner, uh, Rain, uh, you know, Goodman and and, right. and and others were killed, and the effort to get the Voting Rights Act done. It is important to remember. Um, how brutal the apartheid was then, and and that kind of extreme brutal apartheid where you could be shot in the street or hung for looking at a white woman if you were black and easily just killed, no questions asked, nothing done about it, you know, was... And now you can be shot for stealing cigars. Yes, uh, yes, there's, you know, criminal, right, but, but yes, what I'm saying <laughs> or, is, or, or wearing a hoodie and carrying skittles at night. Yes, true. <laughs> However, I'm saying that I, I do think that even with the legacy of racism alive and well, and very disturbingly in the last few years, the restrictions on the voting rights that have occurred that I think affected the midterms. I do think that there's been significant progress, you know, since the early days of the of the early 60s in terms of ability to um, have rights and also the rise for some portion of African-Americans of the middle class that didn't exist then. But still, but still, the first one now is still the first one now. He did not yeah. become last, okay? He's yeah. still the first one, and he's even more entrenched. He's even more entrenched, and he has Citizens United behind him in a way that he didn't right. before. Right. So, so Bob, guess- it was a, it's, it's a wonderful song. It's very inspiring, but, you know, it, 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 sorry. <laughs> yeah, I do think that— I wonder that what it, he thinks when he hears that, hears those words now. Oh, what, who knows I, what goes through— but, I think that would be a wonderful internal monologue for a great actor who's (laughs) who's not worried about the rights, somehow adopting a fake internal monologue of Bob Dylan about anything. He would have no idea. The closest we could get, I think, would be, uh, you know, Chronicles, which I think is a masterpiece. But I think Dylan would look back at it as a, uh, that was my political, you know, sloganeering days and not yeah. look that. However, the big picture takeaway, the times they are a change in was true. The times were changing. Yes. And he was and there were many different, uh, you know, cultural and political and social uh, revolutions of sorts and certainly evolutions that were underway that had a lasting impact on American culture. I think that CNN documentary is a good reminder of that. And of course now he's completely discounted and, um, and, and because he has committed the crime of getting old. You yeah. Can't, you can't be old. 
Sorry. Right. On the other hand, you know, he's completely discounted, but not enough that some auto dealers aren't willing to shell out huge amounts <laughs> of money to get him to be in a Super Bowl ad. So well, he clearly has some currency. Well, and to, and to, he's still, to a certain, he's still to, to a very certain, respected to a certain demographic. Yes. Yeah, to the baby boomers, he's still important, yeah. even though most baby boomers go, I can't, like, most baby boomers who were fans of him and there right. was, and who were willing to overlook his singing back then, 40 years ago, right. now are still grappling with, holy mackerel, do we have to listen to this grumbling, awful voice yes. led into these rip-off blues melodies? So, <laughs> so... On the other hand, he's done, uh, you know, amazing. He's done amazing work, still continues to write occasionally some good songs. And, you know, my feeling is he's Bob Dylan. He can do whatever he wants. And, you know, I would I thought Chronicles was a revelation in that it was so well written, so thoughtful and it, it it's a suggest if if those of you who like chronicles and like the Keith Richards autobiography and like the Patty Smith autobiography which i think are the three greatest autobiographies by rock performers um i happen to be reading now by someone in another field a pioneer Ilya Kazan's famous book called a life and it's very powerful and striking about how a great artist developed um, so even if so, I'm I'm recommending it. But but that's well, how does he how does he deal with the, how does he deal with the the commie scare? Well, he I, I it's such a long book. I'm still in the you 1930s. <laughs> I like I'm at the I, I it's I I had to skip through the background about his 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 Greek grandparents living in Constantinople and coming over, but. I get to the section on the group theater, which is the genesis of all modern American acting, preceding the actor's studio, because I'm one of these people who loves to know where do things begin and how do things get created? Uh-huh. And I do that in my interviewing. How did that happen? How did you do that? And, you know, I did. I attempted to do that with my interview for you with Betty Levette. Uh, also, with my interview with Maria Bamford, the comedian, about how did she make comedy in the wake of hospitalizations for mental illness, and to to see a great artist, and he made me think about what he was. He's very frank and uh, about all elements of his life, including his, ex, you know, uh, what would now be called sexual addiction. In this day, he wouldn't go to a sex addiction therapy, but he would definitely be labeled. You know, in this day and age, if Eli Kazan was alive today, TMZ would have a field day, a field day, following him around as he's cheating on his wives and having sex backstage in alleyways with any any act. I mean, he was really and part of it was uh, a mix of lust and revenge and resentment of all the good looking tall wasps that he never could be like and never be accepted because he was five foot six, fairly homely Greek of Greek origin. But, you know, as he became more and more famous and powerful, his specialty was stealing blonde women away from his friends, anybody who was married. And part of it was he would deliberately get turned on and seek to break up marriages and relationships. (laughs) Not a good person. But a great talent. <laughs> Speaking of Betty Levette, by the way, I'm going to, uh, for, for those of you who are listening, if you have found this on Oregon Music News itself, uh, I, I will put a link to Art's story on Betty Levette on the page here. If not, just go to OregonMusicNews.com and search Betty Levette for Art's story. I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I asked if, you would, if, if you'd be interested in doing a piece on Betty Levette. And all of a sudden, I get this piece from you, and it's 3,500 words. <laughs> And it wasn't a Q and A. It was. It wasn't a Q and A. That's the thing. <laughs> no, I, I, I. Well, I did interview her, but I'm not able to do transcription, and I haven't figured out how you or anyone else with no budget is willing to spend the time transcribing or very it is, limited. Budget. It is the. I've stopped doing it. Actually, I did it for the first issue of Oregon Music News, the magazine, 
uh, because it was storm large, and, uh, and I had to. There was, there was no getting around it. But mostly I do um, audio and video interviews now uh, because I blew out my, my left ear transcribing an interview with Esperanza Spalding a couple of years ago. Lost oh, part of the hearing in my okay. left ear. Really? And, and developed a tinnitus, yes. Is that because you spoke so softly that you had to turn the volume up? I had to turn the volume up, yes. And um, so anyway, so uh, I, you know, it trans but I have always thought that transcribing interviews is the worst part of the job of a journalist. There is nothing worse than <laughs> I totally agree. So here's an example. I interviewed Maria Bamford in the spring of 2013. And you haven't or, transcribed it yet, right? Yeah. And I, I had a, <laughs> someone, I, I got a person who was a, a part-time manager who was hoping to book her and was a comedy fan uh, to transcribe it for me, you know, in between her child-raising opportunities because I didn't <laughs> have the time or patience. I had to do some corrections. but th So it basically was like eight months after the interview did it appear. I have, you know, if it's a 15-minute interview, I can understand it. But the notion of Q&A transcripts... Um, you know, are, is crazy, I think. It's, I know, but you have I to have I am going to be having an audio interview with the great Aaron Foley, who is mm -hmm. scheduled to be in Portland uh, on December 6th, a, gra a great comedian who's got all these wonderful insights about her life and politics and wonderful stage performer. Uh, is going to be in Portland, and I'm hoping to arrange a podcast for you. And that will, urge and, and, all and, and, listeners and, and, to... If you do that, this this will uh, have gone up after that. So uh, okay. if, if, if you actually end up doing it, I'll put a link to it also. Um, we're going to take a little coffee break here on Coffee Shop Conversations. I'm talking with Art Levine, as you know. Uh, and uh, at the uh, World Cup Coffee and Tea at uh, Northwest 18th and Gleason. And uh, we'll just take a little break here and uh, come right back. Well, back with Art Levine, Coffee Shop Conversations. I'm Tom D'Antoni. And, uh, uh, okay, Art, when we, when we were talking about doing this, <laughs> um, we discovered that – and I've been thinking about this because I think it's, it's, a, it's a thing that, about guys, and maybe it's guys in our generation or maybe it's just across the board – I was. We were talking about stuff that you know had gone on, and and there was a whole part of my life where I was passively, aggressively trying to commit suicide by driving a cab and picking up every criminal in the world that you didn't know about, even though we were in contact at that time. And right. that's not that's not about you, and it's and it's not necessarily about me. But it's I I, I think it's. Maybe something about how men communicate or don't communicate, um, because uh, 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 and, and so I I'm, I think there's lots there there may be a whole lot of other things about each other that we don't know, and it it's probably okay. What do you think? Well, my feeling is is that uh, in general, men. Uh, talking to other men uh, who are friends, you know, don't reveal everything. And, you know, I do think that women's style of communication with each other is different. And also I may be more, I have some women friends or platonic friends who I may be more open than I am with men. Also, um, I, I do think even, even quote, sensitive, intellectual, left-wing counterculture men are still <laughs> men if they're heterosexual, and they have still of that uh, element of, you know, uh, not everything, you know, you don't want to appear weak, and you don't want to reveal too much, um, and, you know, in your, so, 
like I I had just no you know literally I had no idea and you know with with the added irony of course is that I'm filled with suggestions on mental health because I do reporting on that yes. I have a book contract <laughs> I usually the other thing is I am the greatest one of the great people at making suggestions for other people to pathway for help and improvement that I am not able to make in my own life. <laughs> I'm, but I have great be able to tell people resources. However, making simpler changes like, oh, going to bed before, oh, you know, five or six in the morning would be a nice idea, you know. But you and, don't do and, that. Right. I like it's tough for me to make changes in my own life but when it comes to d things like depression and bipolar i'm like i'm i'm pretty good i'm not i'm like uh, because i've interviewed doctors and i follow research i could go well you might double check that dosage and you might look into cbt uh, a treatment for that however if it's got an element of trauma you might look at eye movement destabilization research <laughs> is another good thing and you might have those kind of people available for you through the va if they have a clinical teaching position at a nearby you know these are things that the average person who might say you need help wouldn't say <laughs> you know so i'm very i i do think i take um that's the thing is my life is tough enough uh, that I myself am glad I don't have a seriously disabling mental illness. I just have garden variety neurosis, procrastination, and anxiety. However, <laughs> to deal with extremely disabling serious mental illness is very difficult. And for you to have been in your circumstances, you're not an inherently depressed person, but you were facing circumstances that were driving you into depression. So it you know, I don't know. I still to this day, as we are live, don't even know if you are personally deeply depressed or consider yourself deeply depressed. <laughs> Haven't me, been around me, you for years. Meanwhile, I I I think that your issues are much more serious than you're than, than you're saying. And and and, and, I, and I think and I think about that. And and but the thing is, instead of me suggesting anything that would help because I don't know anything that would help it these are things I just accept about you right yes I agree that my I do have serious problems that make my life fairly miserable <laughs> however I am not a depressed why is that funny art why is that funny why, why is, <laughs> well uh we, we why is that funny yes. I guess one has to deal with one's life problems with humor and I'm not a depressive. So um, I'm not, I'm basically not a depressive. I don't have deep depressions. So my life circumstances don't create suicidal impulses. Although for others, they might certainly do so. But it's, it's why we, it's why we laugh at Richard Lewis also. Right. Now, Richard, like, here's the thing is, like, people with problems, um, you know, I definitely, I mean, I've been in therapy in the past, and I need to return to it uh, soon, I think. And it has been periodically helpful. Um, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is, for me, um, you know, dwelling extensively about my full scope of problems is deeply depressing. And one of my uh, joke mottos is I aspire to a state of denial. <laughs> that would, that's ideal. That would allow me to function well. Now, in your case, um, you know, you're, you, you've uh, like one sign of, to me, your what I found fairly uh, Keith Richards style constitution and mental health was that the amount of acid you took in the sixties <laughs> And I, well, I had no idea we would be going out socially. I still remember very vividly. We were, I think, on the, the campus of Johns Hopkins, and I was riffing and spritzing and being entertaining. And I was then doing, it was a Halloween, and I was doing something about monsters. And Tom said, hey, will you cool it? You know, I'm tripping. And I, I forgot. Oh, wait a minute. 
He's tripping, and <laughs> our interactions are he has been filtered through his tripping, and literally I'd be with him doing different things. No idea he'd be on acid. And I do you want to know about my one almost acid experience? Sure. Okay. So I'm at the Atlanta Pop Festival with um Mike Hill, my co-editor of the Johns Hopkins New Letter, who became a TV writer for the Baltimore Sun. Mm-hmm. And we're there in Atlanta, and it's stressful and everything. And I am a college journalist, and I have a press pass, so I am in the backstage side area of the second Atlanta Pop Festival. So basically, uh, Johnny Winter was there, the Allman Brothers, and it is actually true, Hendrix was there, (laughs) alive and Mm -hmm. performing he was performing even Star Spangled Banner. So sometime in that backstage area, a guy who said we were sipping some water and then a guy said, uh, you know, that was spiked with acid. And I then for the next 40 minutes, I'm in the biggest panic of my life because I knew my own mentality where I couldn't even tolerate high uh, dosage of marijuana. I was too sort of emotionally fragile. So I basically thought I was about to have a nervous breakdown and die just before Jimi Hendrix goes on, okay? <laughs> like, I'd be thrashing around in a uh, uh, in a seizure, and then Hendrix would be playing, and nobody would be paying attention because Hendrix was on. And so so then, like, 40 minutes, half, half hour, 40 minutes in, he goes, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, like big joke, fella. But here's the, this is going to be hard to convey. I then went out to the, after, after, um, I think after the Hendrix performance, he may have been the final, but sometimes after, I think it would have been after the performance, I wandered out into the, you know, the the mass populace gathered, you know, Uh hippy dippy sort of trying to recreate in Atlanta, Woodstock. And here's how fervent music fanaticism was. I went out and I said, you know, I was standing, I mentioned to some kid kind of showing off his car, you know, I was standing near the stage and I saw Hendrix. And then whispers went, he saw Hendrix close up. (laughs) And then people began gravitating to me in a kind of spaced out manner. And a girl reached out and touched me like, oh, can I touch you? Because I had been near Jimi Hendrix. Literally, this is exactly parallel to someone who was on the way station of the cross for Jesus. And is telling the story to someone else. Who reaches out to touch them? The hem of your garment. They, th- they wanted to what? touch the hem of your garment. That's right. They absolutely <laughs> wanted to touch the hem of my garment. So this was, uh, and so that was one miracle. And the other miracle was I was so exhausted when I came back and stayed at my friend's Atlanta, uh, uh, Mike Hill's Atlanta suburban home. I slept for like 15 hours, which is an insomniac <laughs> I'd never done in my whole, was the longest sleep I had in my life. And I was delighted. And of course, I've rarely experienced that since, except I'm sleeping longer these days through taking uh, inositol food supplement and cherry tart juice concentrate for any of you with sleep. Jesus fucking Christ, Art. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Enough of that. (laughs) All right. Look, now, now, getting back to your problems. How do all, no, no, no. How do all these, how do all these things dovetail into your writing about mental illness so much? You know, I, I guess it's, I think it's not directly, I think, I think having some problems of my own have made me more empathetic, Mm -hmm. but it's not a one-on-one. The kinds of problems that I've written about, I feel it's a social justice issue. So, and I think because I've experienced some problems on my own, but I also consider myself a fairly empathetic person. And my interest in this issue began in the, uh, you know, about 2001, when there was a series of uh, knifings, a combination of 
some mentally ill people who weren't being treated appropriately released too soon and knifing or killing people in Miami, where mm-hmm. I was based as a reporter. And similarly, cops who were untrained shooting down mentally ill people like a wave of seven deaths in six months. I mean, or something along those lines. Shootings and deaths. For And I got fascinated by what's going wrong here that this is going on. And then I began researching what's known as the criminalization of the mentally ill um, and be, and won awards for the Florida Sunshine Award for mm-hmm. best feature writing and got very interested in following uh, long before Newtown made put it on the map. I've mm-hmm. been following this issue on and off, feeling this is an underreported issue that doesn't get serious investigative journalism or policy analysis. And I still think that's the case. And so periodically I write articles on the topic. It's hard to get editors to show interest, but I periodically write on the topic and I have a book contract with Overlook Press and my mo and one of the areas I exposed back in 2012 and I'm exposing again in a new article in the Huffington Post out last week um, is about the issue related to uh, what are called troubled teen facilities. Facilities that are virtually unmonitored, unregulated, unlicensed, that parents pay a lot of money to to deal with troubled kids. And the kids often end up either neglected, abused, or sometimes allegedly in the school I profiled raped. And it's a a scandal that's not being paid a lot of attention to because it's privately paid. The people who are victimized are mostly affluent and there's no government money involved. So nobody's paying, but some really out of control stuff goes on. And I found this an area of interest. So that's, so my own personal, now another element of my interest, but I became interested in this subject before my mother died uh, through a horrifically terrible accident while, uh, you know, uh, while being hospitalized late in life for what was called late late stage depression. So that's too depressing. See, to go I don't into. know that. I because I don't talk about it much. I and, know. But we're, one we're, reason but, I don't but, talk but about we're, it but is we're good friends. Right. I <laughs> right. Well, an example of things things you things you don't know about Art Levine would right. certainly fill a book, but <laughs> it's a book that will never be published. <laughs> I won't even put it. I'm not going to do any journal online about it either, and it won't. I won't take notes about it on my computer because I don't want my computer hacked. Right. So the reason I don't mention that is is that it would be as simplistic and wrong for people. Oh, you are uh, concerned about maltreatment of people with m- mental illness or ineffective treatment because of your mother's death, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case, and that it's. And either way, I lose. It's like, oh, you're simplistically seeking revenge against the system that killed your mother. Mm-hmm. Or B, you're not driven by the system that killed your mother. And therefore, you're cold and callous about how your mother <laughs> died. So I basically don't bring it up except in these rare circumstances. Yeah. So how did you find out about this situation in Florida? It's an amazing story. It, this is it, it. So the article is summarized at the Huffington Post under my byline, Art Levine, and the headline summarizes the issue: deaths, abuse, and alleged rapes. How lax oversight endangers Florida's and the nation's children. And that's based on a piece I eventually sold to Miami New Times called "Alleged Rape: Show How Failed Oversight Endangers Florida's Most Vulnerable Children." Here's how it happened. It wouldn't have happened except I was doing some research about abusive, uh, abusive treatment. And I ran across a podcast in January 2013 by a uh, an activist based in Palm Beach County um, whose name is Jilly Ryan, who has a blog. 
And she mentioned in passing, without mentioning the name of the school, talking about abusive conditions. She had rescued her daughter from an abusive facility in Georgia and then helped shut it down through her activism. She was saying, oh, and, you know, they're raping disabled kids at these facilities. And I went, I'm listening, going, what? And so I basically tracked her down through the podcaster. It was a radio show called mm-hmm. Bipolar Nation that also had a podcast. And then it turns out she had been leaked to her messages on a listserv from educational consultants to this family and other families with learning disabled. So she had this cache of secret confidential emails in which the consultants were discussing why why they were the, the first she had this alarming series of emails and so one of the emails said what do i do about this girl uh we're advising she's being um used as a drug mule um she is uh being uh you the, know the by the way the, the sound that you're hearing here in the cupping room at uh world cup coffee and tea is one of the baristas grinding coffee which I wasn't aware was going to happen, but, you know, life goes on. Okay. Uh, All right. So, (laughs) anyway, I'll I'll go back. So, essentially, she discovered these secret emails, uh, and if you need me to, if you need me to pause, I will. No, go ahead. No, no, no. So, she discovered these secret emails that were posted on this listserv um, through a source, and 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 it had this it was like in real time going what do i do about this girl uh, i'm advising she's at this school called the vanguard school and this was her hearsay allegation so i'm not saying it's been proven in court yeah. so she was making this allegation that the mother had told her that the girl had been victimized been beaten up and been using uh had been used as a drug mule and things like that these are all what I would characterize as hearsay allegations that I'm not confer- saying actually happened. They're hearsay. But it was told by the mother and said, what do I do? And people said, well, you should, uh, you should definitely give a strong talking to the administrator. No one said, you know, pull the kid immediately or call the cops. Nobody said that in these consultants. So then the next post about the school and this girl was, she's been raped. The mother's coming down to take her out of the school, and where do I place her now? And that was like the second posting. Mm-hmm. Now, again, just to be clear, for legal reasons, none of these things have been confirmed in court, and they're allegations. Um, however, I then, um, and then this same Jilly Ryan had discovered that there was a lawsuit that nobody knew about. Nobody knew about against the school. It was, it wasn't kept hidden, but no one paid any attention to it. So I basically learned about the lawsuit, obtained some of the legal documents that were publicly filed about it, and then began reporting and then calling sources of people who had attended there or people who used to work there. And uh, I had an assignment from one publication that ultimately. Uh, decided not to move ahead because my sources weren't on the record. And then it took several more months for me to find another publication. That was Miami New Times. Mm-hmm. So I basically learned. Then I found in the course of it about the police colluding with, apparently colluding with the school by doing this completely bogus uh, investigation. Again, this is my allegation, a bogus allegation, and the police declined to comment. So the girl is allegedly raped at 9 p.m., about 8.45 p.m. on one night. Nobody call, nobody on the staff calls police at all. Then, then, then they send out a little alert to the supervisor on duty and so on and to the principal and school president. Nobody calls or does anything. They wait until like 12 hours later until the school principal president, the principal, drives in about an hour from Tampa. This place is located near Orlando. And then she personally interviews people and then calls the cops. They come on and she makes the claim to them, we have a videotape showing that these alleged suspects were in their dorm rooms and couldn't have raped the girl. And the cop takes 
her word for it does not ask. It's a detective named uh, Mary Jerome, uh, who I asked for comment, declined to comment. She takes the word of the school president, who clearly wants to defend the reputation of the school, that she has a videotape, you know, proving that they're, um, you know, innocent. And however, he, she never produces the videotape. And he writes, she writes his report saying, uh, videotape evidence shows they couldn't have done it. Okay. So and what, that's the kind of thing that went on. And then what has, what has happened since this was published? Anything? Well, um, I, well, there's going to be, um, I think eventually some of this material may be circulated to go government agencies or law enforcement by activists in the field, not by me. Uh, it's gotten so it's got a fair amount of attention because it appeared in, you know, leading alternative weekly new times in all three South Florida counties. Mm -hmm. It's appeared on the Huffington Post at the front of the politics section in terms of actual legal or regulatory action. So far, nothing's happened. There's going to be a social media campaign uh, geared around the hashtag shut Logan River because those are the people most at or keep kids safe. These are the hashtags on Twitter where activists who are concerned about other troubled teen facilities are going to drive attention to mm -hmm. this article on Huffington Post. And if this issue concerns or interests your readers, go to the Huffington Post, look up Art Levine, Huffington we'll Post. Put the, the, uh, we'll, if, we, we will put the, the, the link on the, on, on the, on the post right. on this. Okay? And leave comments there. Leave yeah. comments at the article. Yeah, but go ahead. Okay, well, with the time we've got left, um, wh what have you been listening to? What music have you been listening to? Well, I've been listening mostly to the great new Lucinda Williams album, which I mm -hmm. think is really very good. And it's getting really among her strongest reviews. It's a double CD. And I recently, <laughs> here's Happenstance. Thank God for Google alerts. I was going to a meeting at Ben's Chili Bowl on U Street and 14th in Washington. And next door she was playing. And I didn't, I sort of saw that she was playing, but I forgot. And at the time she was playing, I didn't have $40 to walk in and go see her. Mm -hmm. And so I'm walking by to Ben's Chili Bowl and I see that she's playing, you know, through a Google alert. And then I go in and buy a ticket. And then after the meeting, I go in and see her show. And it was the greatest performance i'd ever seen of her uh, one of the greatest is you you know i wrote about her yes uh performance for you based mm -hmm. on the 930 club yeah she's singing even better and her band is even better she has the lead guitarist from the wallflowers and mm -hmm. her voice is so powerful and she's also doing stuff to ramp things up in terms of her ballads are as powerful as ever both in the album and in show, she's so energetic, and she did something uh, different with Get Right With God, which is a classic from an earlier album. She double-timed it like a real gospel song, where you get real, like, happy feet super yeah. fast, mm -hmm. and people were going crazy. So she, you know, it was one of, like, a, she really got into the feel, and then she closed out the show in great rock style, by doing a fabulous cover of Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young. And the crowd went out of their minds, and she, her management said on Facebook, it was the best show of her tour. And she was so enthused by our response, because Washington is it's kind of like Portland, in some, sort of like in terms of the people. It's like Portland, but with people with jobs and real money. In other words, a lot of people in Washington have the same sensibility as Portland, but they're, you know, they keep their foot in the counterculture. They love NPR and they follow, you know, gourmet things and all that. But that most of them, not me, have actual jobs, real high paying jobs so they can indulge themselves. So we have a fondness for kind of outsider uh, artists who are not mainstream, but will sell out or draw huge crowds all the time. And that was like with Bonnie Raitt, who I think Lucinda is a parallel figure with. Uh -huh. We were supporting Bonnie Raitt with huge sellouts at Meriwether Post and Wolf Trap when she didn't even have a record label. 
before she, you know, after she was dropped by, you know, wherever she was dropped, and mm -hmm. before she released Nick of Time, she was in this kind of netherworld as an artist, where she was either without a label or without good promotion. We would show up, so... <laughs> We basically, like I wrote for about a 930 club, we baby boomers and younger literati folk roots types respond to her like teens respond to One Direction. Okay? <laughs> they go out of their minds. And particularly women, it's like it's like this love affair between the audience and her. And she actually said on stage, you know, love what you're doing and and you know keep hollering it's great she was like so enthused by by and this is completely opposite what i saw like 10 years ago in west palm beach at a big kind of art center and there was like it was half full and she'd already been on referenced as the best songwriter in america by time magazine it was still half full car wheels was already out it was a desultory audience and she said early on what is it you guys don't get out much meaning like <laughs> you're so uncool that you didn't know how great she was and b what's the matter couldn't more of you get out here to see me and she still put in a great show that is the complete opposite of DC, where everybody knows her. And I think she does very well in Portland, too, yeah, correct? Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. Well, listen, Art, this has been a, a great hour. I really, you know, of course, you know, we've, <laughs> we've done this before. And because uh, uh, you and I used to do a, a blog talk radio show. And, uh, and, but we didn't, I don't think we ever did it just the two of us. Although I've had shows that we've done this, you know, just the two of us, and this has been great, and and and, and maybe we'll even find out things about each other. Yeah, we well we've had these kind of in, in the conversations future. on the phone. Yeah, right, right. Okay, all right. Okay, Thanks, Art. I'll share. So I'll share forty percent more if you'll agree to share forty percent more. I agree. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. 